Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, episode 50. I can't believe we're here already, just after seven months since the release. We're already through 50 episodes of the podcast. So as always, thanks to everyone for supporting me and the kind of vision that I have here with East Meets West. And I promise to keep trying to put out the best information and content possible from the adventure hunting aspect from any place from east to west. So anyways, just some quick quick news here. Uh, This upcoming weekend... February 16th, I'll be out in Manchester, Michigan for the Wilderness Connection Wild Game Dinner. I'm doing a speaking presentation there, actually, on planning a Western hunt. And I'll be selling some apparel, doing some giveaways, a whole bunch of fun stuff there. And wanted to announce the winners, uh, the two winners of the Onyx elite memberships that I gave away through Instagram and Facebook as well as if you purchased any of the East Meets West apparel off of the website in January you were entered to win. So thank you to Vinny Esposito and Patrick Reynolds as they are the winners for this giveaway here from Onyx. So $99 value, one year elite membership all 50 states are covered and i'll be sending those out here this week so be looking for some more giveaways to be coming up here soon so we're going to jump into the sponsors of the podcast so as i announced last week the university of elk hunting by elk 101 is now a sponsor of the podcast If you're looking for a resource as far as everything encapsulating elk hunting from the planning phases through the scouting, fitness, gear, elk behavior, elk knowledge, elk calling, um, packing out meat, field care meat, everything from that aspect, University Elk Hunting is your complete comprehensive resource for that. I've been using the the University of Elk Hunting now for three years myself. I've purchased the program and Corey and I have partnered up here for 2019 and he decided to offer all the listeners of the podcast $20 off of the program. So normally uh, $99, you can pick it up for $79 with code East Meets West at checkout. In addition, Heather's Choice is also a sponsor of the podcast as they have the meals for adventuring that are healthy and provide you with the the nutrients that are needed to push through long 7, 12, 14 day hunts as well as snacking on their packers in a tree stand. Awesome products from Heather's Choice use the code East Meets West, it'll get you free shipping on any orders over $99. All 
All right, with that being said, let's jump right into this here. Damon Bungard from Orion Coolers will be the guest on this podcast. Damon's a very interesting guy, and he was one of the first people I reached out to when I had the idea of the podcast. Last January, I actually sent him a message on Instagram and kind of introduced myself there to to get him on the podcast. Finally, we're able to link up get this going he's coming from the mountains of tennessee doing some unique whitetail hunting experiences there but he also travels the world doing some pretty cool hunts um throughout from that standpoint if you would go on to itunes or wherever you're listening to the podcast at give us a rating and review and subscribe to the podcast thanks for listening Welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast. Today I have on the line a special guest from down south in Tennessee. I have Damon Bungard on the line. Damon, how are things going today? Good, Bo. How are you doing? Uh, I can't complain. It's a nice cold, cold day here in Pennsylvania. So you sucked into the polar vortex? Oh yeah, we're sucked into it here. Some <laughs> negative temperatures and everything else. So it's a it's a good day to be inside right now. Yeah, I've had a I've had a fire going in the fireplace most of the day, so I can't complain. Yeah how how uh, how's the weather down there? Uh, it's, I think it, it was in the mid twenties today. You know, which is pretty. It's cold. You know, sometimes it, it, there'll be periods here every winter where it's. You know, in the in the teens, highs in the teens or twenties, but it's not normal. Usually, we're in the thirties, forties. <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah, we uh we had some pretty pretty cold weather today. I was working outside a little bit, and that wasn't uh, ideal. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I, I bet. Yeah. So, anyways, Damon, do you want to start off here with uh, introducing yourself and and giving the listeners a uh, background on you and and who you are? Sure. So. Um, I am the I, uh, launched and am brand manager of Orion Coolers. Um, I'm product manager at Jackson Kayak, and I just launched and am brand manager of Orion Kennels. Um, so that's kind of what I do professionally. Um, so I'm I'm involved in a lot in product development, but also a lot in in sales and marketing and um, different things in the uh, in the outdoor industry and. So my background is I grew up uh, as an army brat, uh, military dependent, everyone to call ourselves. Um, so my father was a colonel in the army, and I grew up uh, like all military dependents, you know, getting new orders to move every few years and kind of traveling the world. Um, and I was fortunate enough to, that no matter where we lived in the world, um, starting in you know second grade, I think my parents would put me on a plane. And send me to my grandparents' property in South Carolina for the summer. So um, school would end and, you know, lived in Germany, get on the plane. My mom and dad would stay in Germany and my brother and I would fly back um, and spend our summers outside doing, you know, whatever we wanted. Um, riding four-wheelers and fishing and shooting and, you know, all the stuff now that I'd probably send somebody to, like, parents to child services for. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so that was good, and and you know, uh, uh, traveling. Um, my family's uh, history is from Europe, and um, hunting goes way back in my uh, family. My great grandfather was a game warden in Austria. We have a lot of you know deer roebuck mounts going back to the 1800s. 
Um, and so my, both my grandfathers, uh, you know, they were in the war or they were army and Marines, um, and they hunted. So they, they started taking me hunting, um, at a young age and shooting at a young age and bows and guns and all of it. Um, and so, and no matter where we lived, my, my father went out of his way to, uh, you know, he's very busy obviously, but still try to make time to take me hunting. Um, you know, whether it was Fort Stewart, Georgia or Fort Hood, Texas, or going hiking in the Alps and in Europe. Um, I was too young to hunt there, but we'd go, you know, we'd go hunt crystals and we'd go hunt just stuff to, just stuff to look at, stuff to glass. Um, and so, you know, through school, I graduated high school in Texas. Um, I, I had a scholarship to Clemson university in South Carolina, went to school at Clemson, go Tigers. Um, and, uh, that's kind of where my kind of outdoor professional career, I could say, began. I, you know, I started guiding there, backpacking and rock climbing in the Southern Appalachians around North Carolina, Brevard, North Carolina. Um, and I worked at the local outdoor shop. Uh, it was called Outdoor Adventures at the time. Now it's Elkmont Trading Company. Um, and I also got professionally sponsored as a whitewater kayaker back then. And whitewater kayaking while I was in college kind of you know, dominated my lifestyle and, and I paddled as much as I possibly could wherever I could. And then when I graduated, I moved to Vermont, um, and took a job in the aerospace and defense industry. And I worked in the defense industry for about a decade, um, working on various missile programs and counter IED programs and different things. Um, but also while still being a professional sponsored athlete, for kayaking, and I was—I traveled the world from Chile to France to Canada, all over paddling whitewater, um, and then eventually transitioned full time uh, out of product development in the defense world into product development in the outdoor world. That happened in 2011, um, and I, we, I worked from Vermont for a few years, and then finally we moved to Tennessee about 2014. So that's the—that's the history there, um, and hunting's. You know, kind of always been in my life. You know, I've had a lot of passions. Uh, you know, backpacking led to rock climbing. You know, whitewater. Uh, the backpacking led to rock climbing, and the, the, I pursued those very heavily. And then I was literally rock climbing in the New River Gorge one day, and saw it was super hot, and I was just getting baked on the rock. And I saw kayakers having fun down on the river, and I was like, "Man, I should go do that. That seems like a lot better way to spend a hot day." <laughs> <laughs> And literally, I went to like the outdoor store, backcountry in Blacksburg, Virginia, mm-hmm. bought bought a kayak, all the gear, learned to roll in about fifteen minutes, and within six months, I was you know uh, professionally involved in, in whitewater kayaking. I just I just took to it. I was you know call it a natural, whatever. Um, and then whitewater you know took me all over the world as my next passion. And then I moved to Vermont. You know I can't paddle in the winter; everything freezes. So then ice climbing, you know, occupied my life and mountaineering for quite a while. Um, but hunting was always along the way, you know, I eat game. Um, and then as I've gotten older, you know, a lot of backcountry hunting to me has combined a lot of the different aspects of rock climbing and just exploring and travel um, and being self-sufficient, you know, a backcountry hunts, just backpacking with a gun, really. <laughs> so, yeah. or what. so, um, it's kind of all kind of come full circle. Uh, 
and I, I still paddle whitewater every now and again. Um, uh, not nearly as much as I used to. I spend more, way more time in fishing kayaks. Um, and fly fishing is a huge part of my life. Um, but you know, this year I'm going to do a 10 day whitewater kayak self support of the grand Canyon. So that should be fun. <clears throat> oh, wow. Yeah. That sounds like a pretty interesting trip. How long will that take? It'll take about 10 days on the water. Um, uh, we can do it in less than that. That's what our permit is for is for 10 days. So not counting travel time to and from the Canyon. But. <clears throat> I gotcha. So yeah, you've had a pretty interesting background in just about every outdoor space, you know, from, from the hunting community into the, you know, the outdoor sports, um, side of things. So that's, that's a really interesting aspect. And, and you'd said like, you know, from the beginning, from when you were a kid, you were traveling and everything, you know, just as a part of the lifestyle of growing up in, you know, that environment in the military family and everything along those lines. Did that kind of translate into your love for, you know, traveling to hunt and backcountry hunting and everything else? I think it definitely did. You know, it, it, it teaches you independence at a very young age um, and self-sufficiency and all those in decision-making and all those things that I think ultimately are what, you know, hunting, I gravitate to and hunting. And, um, yeah, I'm a problem solver. So whether it's looking at a, a rapid and figuring out how to run it or looking at rock or ice and figuring out how to climb it or looking at a species and figuring out how to hunt it, it's all really just problem solving, right? Um, it's, uh, and there's different physical aspects of each of them that are all come into play in solving that problem. But, um, that's kind of, that's kind of a very, you know, I'm an engineering by degree. That's a very engineering way of looking at things, but, um, without a lot, you know, distilling it down, but that is kind of, I think when I fundamentally look at it, you know, um, uh, fly fishing is the same way, figuring out uh, how to find the fish, then how to catch the fish, uh, uh, it's all part of the process, right? It's all what makes it fun. So, <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's super interesting. And like you said, it's, it's funny seeing how, you know, a lot of people get into it and their reasons behind it. And it's, it's pretty easy to see, like you said, you like that challenge of it and the problem solving aspect. And you said it before, while I was thinking it, the engineering mind, that that comes out either there it's very similar to my brother's the same way he's got that same engineering mindset loves figuring things out and and you know just diving into it full force sounds sounds like a little bit you have a um a little bit of addictive personality when it comes to um getting i guess for lack of better terms obsessed with certain yeah. aspects <laughs> no doubt about it that uh <laughs> when i when i strike something that i like it tends to be a cannonball not a not a wait not waiting in so <clears throat> yeah um uh and that's good and bad but you know i think a lot of things you learn i am you know i think if you want to get good at something quick you surround yourself with people that know what they're doing um and you can emulate and learn from. And I've always, I think that's true for a lot of aspects in life. If you surround yourself with good people, you tend to be a good person. Um, and uh, I think that's true whether, you know, growing up, I played a lot of tennis. And whether it was, whether it was you know, learning to play competitive high-level high tennis or fly fishing or whitewater cacking, all of it. You know, there's there's just, so, just it's never-ending learning. Um, and I love that hunting and fishing constantly, constantly reminds me that, I'm dumber than fish and deer. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> they, they tend to win. So uh, 
that's that's a good humbling uh, thing to have reminded you to keep reminding yourself of is that yes that fish is smarter than i am yeah they knocked me off my pedestal just about every single year every single hunt it seems like just when i think i got things figured out and i'm on my high horse they throw me right down yeah but But, no that's it's funny that you say that because i i uh i won't oh i haven't gotten into fly fishing at all yet because i'm afraid of it that i think i'm gonna get super addicted to it and i just feel like my time is is so limited as all of ours is but you know it's it's one of those things that i know with my addictive personality with it that i'm going to go full force and my brother's experiencing that right now as he's diving into the fly fishing world and he's completely obsessed with it and his keeps keeps getting me like looking at it but i i'm I'm afraid to go full force (laughs) it was interesting for me because it was whitewater that really led me to fly. Whitewater kayaking led me to fly fishing because I kept finding myself in places that I know nobody ever fished, and I was seeing trout and these beautiful wild places. Um, and I actually started fly fishing at a whitewater demo event. There were fish rising, and I was like, I, I was like, I need something to occupy the evenings by my campsite. I could go fish, so I took a class at like L.L. Bean on how to cast at one, a demo I was doing over there at L.L. Bean's main headquarters there in Freeport, Maine. And then kind of, boom, just like you're saying, it was like, all right, now I got to do this all the time, everywhere. Where can I go? And then, um, you know, and, and Whitewater to me ultimately was about interacting with rivers. And I find a lot of the same pleasure that came from running hard Whitewater. I still get waiting in a river and just spending time being part of that ecosystem and really in the ecosystem and reading all the signs that it's giving you, um, and being part of it. So, uh, yeah, now now kayak fly fishing is, you know, I've, uh, been fortunate that that's part of my job. So whether it's filming kayaks in Belize that we've made for fly fishing or, you know, going, taking my dad to Alaska and taking him fly fishing or other friends, you know, I get to experience all that. Yeah. That's not too bad of a job. I'd say to get to get to test all those aspects. You kind of have it all covered from the the side with Orion with you're saying having the, well, the, the Jackson kayak side of things and then the Orion coolers and then now Orion kennels, you kind of have a, a lot of things covered there that you get to, um, I guess from the field test and, and product testing side of things, get to do some fun stuff. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's fun to be able to make products that are meant to do a job and do specific things and work well at what they do. And, you know, obviously I have a level of insight, um, into these activities that makes developing products to do them more fun and better. I don't want to say easy, but you kind of get the point, you know, it's like we, we live it. We have, a, and I'm not the only one in the company, you know, we have a passionate group of the Jackson family. I call them the Kennedys of whitewater and you know, the first family of whitewater. So, they won more championship whitewater championships and races than anybody else. So, um, you know, we know what we're doing when it comes to whitewater kayaks. We have a great kayak fishing crew. And with coolers, it was, you know, when I decided to launch Orion coolers, it was, uh, you know, there was a lot of just call them, I don't want to say plastic boxes out there, but ultimately there were a lot of coolers that all they did was keep things cold. And we thought, oh, they, they, they can do a lot more and be part of your life. You know, they can be part of your camping setup. They can be your kitchen setup. They can be mounted on a kayak. They can, you know, <clears throat> there's a lot of different um, things a cooler can enhance in your life other than keeping things cold. <clears throat> so 
we tried to design a modular cooler system that you could tailor to what whatever your passion was day to day um and then now same with the kennels you know try to figure out ways to really integrate a kennel into outdoor enthusiast lives with their dogs and make all that better so <clears throat> it's a uh, it's fun seeing how these things come to life and um how they can help you do more and have more fun. Yeah. I mean, and it sounds like you're kind of living what you preach there as far as surrounding yourself with, you know, very talented people in each aspect. And, and then you become, you know, a part of it learned what you're, what you're talking about the, uh, the Jackson family there, um, as far as, you know, how they were, you know, one more championships, uh, or however you worded that there, that's, that's, uh, definitely an important aspect as far as, succeeding in anything really in life but as far as the 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 route that you've taken that's um extremely important i think yeah and gotta we don't we want to we want to walk the walk we don't want to just talk to talk so yeah and i was actually going to wait um to later in the podcast to discuss this but if while we're kind of on the topic do you want to dive into since with a lot of our, our my listeners i guess here uh, specifically with uh, the hunting community and everything, can you kind of discuss how uh, Ryan coolers are designed to for uh, you know a hunt from the hunting side of things? How you can use that? Sure. Um, so you know I've I, I you know traveled a lot to to, um, to hunt. Obviously, you know people that do whether you're driving big cross country trips. Um, you know, from East coast to out West going to elk hunt, um, or flying, you know, I, when I lived in Vermont, I'd fly down to my parents. My dad retired outside of Fort Stewart, retired as the County engineer for Chatham County, Georgia, which is a Savannah area. And I'd go down multiple times a year to hunt hogs and deer with him. Um, and then I'd fly him home, you know, and, uh, I had a nice cooler, to, you know, check it on the airplane, fly it home. Um, so ultimately, you know, a good, a good cooler and there's, you know, there's a lot of great premium cooler brands out there. We all know what they are. Um, they, uh, they do a good job and they all work. Um, but you know, as I'm in overlanding, you know, camping out of my vehicle out of my Jeep and, um, I had friends in overland club. Um, and you know, it's always about having to carry less. So, you know, when it came to our coolers, it was, Oh, why can't we mount a seat back system on, the kennel just like our kayak seat backs so that once you're at your campsite whether it's a backcountry hunting campsite or a music festival it doesn't matter the cooler comes out you set it by your fire and you have a comfortable backrest like now it's also a chair i don't have to bring an extra chair um when it's uh little things like bottle openers i think you know we've all been at a party or been in the dark in the woods and you go in the cooler and you get your beer out and then you ask oh who's got the opener well you know we we integrated t- more tie down points, um, to give you a lot of flexibility mounting in ATVs or backs of trucks, but those tie down points in the corners are also bottle openers. Um, and that was one of the patented aspects of the design. Um, you know, we, we, we tucked in the, the latches so that, you know, like a lot of us, you know, if I'm sliding my SKB bow case and my, you know, my sick wheel duffel and my cooler all in the back of the Jeep, um, a lot of those, a lot of latches would snag, you know, it's very tight space. You know, I got it like, I got it, you know, figured out like a Tetris game, right? I know what goes where. <laughs> and if you're sliding it in and that your latch snags and you lose your seal, you know, you either, A, you break, you bust your knuckles up trying to slide your hand in there to reclose that latch, or you don't know it's knocked off and you lose your seal during a long drive. 
so all those things kind of, you know, came in to play. Um, and, you know, people try to justify value of expensive coolers. And it depends on how you live and how often you use it. But this is a great example, um, real world story. Um, so for any of the East Coast listeners here who ever are interested in doing a moose hunt um, uh, without, that you can drive to. Um, so I took dad and we did a moose hunt in Newfoundland a couple seasons ago. So I drove, I drove from Tennessee to, we had eight Orions for this trip. Uh, I drove from Tennessee to Vermont and left my wife, uh, my wife there. She, she's from Vermont and left her with, with her mother, with her mother in Virginia. My father flew into Burlington. Then we drove from Burlington to, and the, you know, um, Nova Scotia, got on the ferry, um, uh, overnight ferry to Newfoundland, got on float planes, got flown in, got dropped, did our hunt, got two bulls. Um, and then midweek they were able to run our meat out on an Argo, um, and get picked up and then got it to a processor. So then we, we got to that processor at like noon on a Saturday at the end of our hunt. And they had it mostly, it had been in a freezer for a little bit, but it was kind of that state of meat that's, uh, you know, you squeeze it and it's kind of crunchy. It's still a little soft, kind of crunches a little bit. Um, and that's how we had 500, roughly 500 pounds of meat. Um, and it all went into the Orions. So, and then that left, you know, just a few inches on top, uh, of dead air space, which are then filled with ice. And you always want to make sure you, you know, your dead air space is one of your heat killers. So you want to make sure anytime you pack a premium cooler dense, you pack it for a long term, you want to pack it densely. Um, and then, so then that's noon on Saturday, uh, got back to the ferry overnight ferry one day, day and a half back to Vermont. Bottom line is it was a week, um, before I got back to Charlotte, which was where, um, my father had flown by, left his car, he flown out of there, left his car. Um, and I handed him off his four coolers and I took mine and came back to Tennessee. So I got back to Tennessee. It was roughly, I think eight days after uh, we left Newfoundland and never had opened them up. And the meat and the, the ice layer on top was unchanged and the meat was actually unchanged. Like that semi crunchy state of meat was still hundred percent there. So, you know, no need to drive a generator and a fridge freezer. None of that stuff. You see all these contraptions and flatbeds going up there. All the meat was fine. Well, dad was, he got home the day before Hurricane Matthew, if you recall it, coming up the East Coast and all the evacuations and stuff. And he was in the evacuation zone in Savannah. And he called and said, hey, you know, son, I, I have you know, 100 pounds of meat. I'm going to lose power tomorrow. You know, what should I do? And I was like, put everything, take, you know, put everything you have in your chest freezer. And as soon as you lose power, put them all right back in the Orions. And he was like, really? I was like, oh, yeah. Was like, you just, just, when you lose power tomorrow when the storm hits, still get back in there. So sure enough, that's what he did. He, he, he got a chill on it uh, overnight in the freezer, lost power the next day, put them right back in the Orions. And they were out of power for 10 days. And he literally called me and he said, son, I am watching Martha, who is his neighbor across the street. I am watching Martha empty her freezer while I am repacking my frozen moose into ours, like throwing her freezer away. Um, so, you know, that value right there, I don't know how much people 
I put a lot of value on 300 pounds of moose meat that he would have lost. Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> um, after all that effort that we had just gone through to get it all, I was gonna, you know, I was gonna be terrible if he lost all of it. <laughs> um, so the fact is, there's a lot of, the, you know, it's a long story to just say if you if you live a certain lifestyle, it's worth making an investment in any premium cooler. Make your choice as you wish. Um, but there's a lot of good ones out there, and they do a good job, and they can definitely. Once you have one for a while, you'll realize how do I ever not have one of these? So. Yeah, yeah. Is there's there's another thing I don't think that you had mentioned that I had uh, seen in in one of the Orion coolers it was a cutting board. Is that something that's built in, or is that an added feature? That's one of the accessories. Um, it's called the buckboard. Um, we have we have a couple different ones. There's one that's a vertical divider. It's just a food grade cutting board. Then we have a cutting board that rests on top of the like the opening the re- there's a recess the lip and if you open the if you open it, when it's installed when you open the cooler lid all you're going to see is this cutting board and on one side is the cutting board and the other side um has a couple different buck pack light tools recessed in on on magnets so they always have a place you never lose them you know if you've worked if you worked assembly lines and production you know people often start a ship with tools coming from an open slot and then end it with all the tools going back into the same open slot. So, you know, you, you haven't lost any tools in the course of the day. Same kind of concept. I don't like getting to my campsite in the dark and fumbling around trying to make dinner. Where's my knife? Where's this? It's a, they always have a place. They're always stored there. They're protected. Um, so it's a pretty cool system called the Buckboard. Um, we have it for different sizes. Um, or all the sizes of the coolers have their own custom one. But awesome. Comes in pretty handy. Well, cool. That's that's kind of what I wanted to uh, cover there from the Orion standpoint. So let's let's dive into some fun stuff here, Damon. Let's dive into this recent coos deer hunt that you were just telling me about that you went on. What was it? A few weeks ago? Yeah, it was uh, January. I don't know, a couple weeks ago. So yeah, like twelfth to twentieth, somewhere in there. Um, yeah, Arizona. Uh, my first time on a coos deer hunt. Um, you know, I've been able to hunt a few different you know localities of whitetail from Ontario. You know, tracking them in the snow in Ontario to you know southeastern you know Mid Atlantic whitetail. Um, you know, Seminole whitetail way south Georgia and Florida, and then um, mule deer out west. But it, and blacktail. We did a blacktail hunt this last fall up in Alaska on Kodiak. Um, but never hunted coos, and for those who don't know, coos deer or cows deer, I've heard it pronounced both ways, I'm not really sure which the proper one is. Um, uh, they're basically a really small whitetail subspecies, uh, about 100 pounds as adults, um, live in the desert of the southwest, uh, states like Arizona, New Mexico. Uh, I don't know if they get into Texas or not. I wouldn't be surprised if there are some. Um, and in Mexico itself. Um, and so, yeah, I'd invite... Uh, to go out and and jackson kayaks uh, you know we're a private company but one of our main investors has a ranch there um the borders national forest um so he'd offered to horse pack us in and i was like okay <laughs> sounds like a pretty cheap hunt tags are over the counter in january for archery so anybody can go out and do it um and so me and a cameraman uh you know flew out and um uh got our tags and uh, we got Tony to, uh, thank you, Tony, got to pack, pack us in with the horse and a mule. And, you know, it was nice. I, you know, I, 
backcountry hunts are great, but you usually got to skimp on what you bring. It's it's a luxury when you get to have a, a mule carry 100 pounds of water for you and frozen steaks for multiple nights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to cook on the fire. So that was a real nice luxury to be able to hike in for miles with, you know, decently light packs uh, and having the mule do most of the work. Um, uh, but we had a great campsite and, um, uh, first night we were able to glass, a, a buck running a doe up over this ridge line. We were camped at around 6,000 feet. That was up around seven. And, uh, next day we headed up there and just got right into like coos deer rut mania. There was six or eight does running all kinds of directions, three or four different bucks chasing them all over. And <clears throat> we had them. You know, at one point, there's one doe. I thought she was going to bring a buck right to us, and she zigged instead of zagged, and then the buck stayed, you know, 80 yards out instead of coming to, to 30, 40. Um, and we kept just sneaking in, sneaking in. We had this one beautiful, beautiful buck uh, at about 100 yards for 20, 30 minutes broadside. I mean, such an easy rifle shot, you know, like just a gimme rifle shot. And just couldn't get him. Like he couldn't get. I couldn't get him to come to a grunt or a doe call or anything. And then finally he bedded down and it was right on this knife edge ridge. And I was like, okay, now's my chance. I can fall off the backside of the ridge where he can't see me. And then when I I can I can get closer and then pop out above him. And then when I pop out, he should stand up and be in bow range. And just as I'm about to make my move to close that last, you know, 60 yards to get into bow range, this little kind of dumb four corn spike <laughs> comes kind of just strolling in like, you know, <laughs> young bucks do, you know, scent going all over the place. Clearly there's a hot doe there and, uh, he's kind of running around. He's in bow range. I let him pass. I'm like, get out of here. I want to, you know, I'm trying to get the other one. And, um, he decides to walk over near that big one, which then gets him to stand up and run him off. But then he decided to kind of start slowly walking out of view. So I tried to move, get make my move quick and still pop up. Um, and then he just was gone. And I saw that little spike again. Um, let him walk again. I was looking for the big guy. And it was like the it was like a textbook first day. It was like, okay, first day we get to camp, we glass deer, next day we find said deer. Almost good bow shot. Like it's really only way it could have ended better was obviously getting a deer, but it was pretty epic. Like this is textbook. This is what you want to have happen out West. Um, uh, get their glass, find animals, get on animals. And then the course of the next week, we just never could get close again to really anything. We saw a deer, you know, a lone buck, you know, wandering miles away across two canyons. Um, and we watched some, we watched a doe across this canyon. She was a hundred yards, probably as a crow flies from us. Sorry, about 200 yards. Um, but like she was feeding on this bush for 10 minutes and then stepped behind the bush and just disappeared. I mean, we literally watched that deer disappear. There was a little bit of stuff to her right and a little bit under her. And, but I was, I, we don't know where that deer went. <laughs> both, both of us looked like that deer just disappeared and she kept looking over her shoulder. But, like, Oh, it's gotta be a buck with her. You know, we'll see him. Maybe we'll see him bed. She just poof. And that's kind of, they call him the desert ghost. And they, I've, I, I know exactly why they did. They blend right in and they just literally disappear in that landscape. But it was really, it was, you know, ultimately it was not a hunt where I came home feeling like I'd done something wrong or disappointed. It was a really good week in the Arizona mountains. We didn't see a person. Um, uh, 
just a good time. But um, certainly hope to have another chance at it one day. But um, it's worth a shot if, if people have time in January over the counter archery tags, lots of public land, have at it. Yeah. So, like you were saying that they're like a subspecies of a whitetail. And I know the landscape is completely different than where you're typically hunting whitetails, but do they kind of, do they act similar, similarly to, or they, they don't, um, they act, uh, well, yes and no. Um, but they, they act a little more like, like a mule deer in some aspects, but one of the key differences during the rut is they act more like an elk in that. Um, the bucks tend to have a harem of does. So like a, like a bull elk will have a herd of cows, um, and maybe some younger satellite bulls with them, but they'll tolerate, uh, coos deer tend to do the same thing. So uh, tend to be, you know, you find a group of does and then you look for the buck shadowing them. Um, so, and I'm no coos deer hunting expert. This is just like what I, you know, I put together from friends and other inputs. Uh, Randy Newberg goes every year and let it, other industry people go in between ATA and SHOT Show is a common time to go because you're yeah. going to be out way for SHOT Show in Vegas. And um, we know what I gathered was, you know, spend your time glassing for does um, and then find the buck because he's not going to be far off. Um, and that was really our experience that first day was the uh, first hunting day was, you know, there was a cluster of does couple of them were, uh, I mean, they just looked exhausted seeing these bucks running them around. Um, and they, they had drawn all the activity there. And I think it's kind of feast or famine if you're there peak rut like that. It's either going to be you're on a cluster of deer or you're on, you know, nothing. You're on rock. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I'm really curious what it's like there, like in December and earlier during rifle season um, and what how they're behaving then. Um, but that's all by lottery. You have to draw for that. Gotcha. I was going to ask if you thought they got a lot of pressure if it was over the counter, but if it's lottery, it's a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. What did you, and you didn't see, you said you didn't see another soul, another human out there while you were hunting, correct? No. Well, except for, uh, Tony has one ranch hand who was out fixing fences, but that was again. We classed them from miles away. <laughs> yeah, because you were saying what you're using, you're using the, the private land, you access a, a piece of public, correct? Correct, yeah. Gotcha. Oh, that that's cool. That's a that's an interesting hunt that not a lot of people think about as far as, you know, Western hunting and everything, probably because of the time of year. And it's not typically thought of as a hunting season, at least, at least for my, you know, coming from the east here, that's typically when we're winding down our whitetail season yeah. yeah, it seems like and that's you know, that. in the East, most people think Alabama, you know, because there are ruts in February, January. People either people either migrate to Alabama um, or out West, so it's let's go try try to get a coos. Yeah, it definitely seems like in the last few weeks on just on social media and stuff, I'm seeing all these like you said, a lot of the industry guys hunting uh, the coos deer, cows deer uh, recently here, like you said, in between ATA and Shot Show. And, and like you said, in Arizona, and I saw, I think, uh, maybe Steve Rinella and a few people were in Mexico hunting them. So that's a, that's pretty cool that those, those deer, you know, live in that, that different type of environment that at least I've never been to. So that's, that's cool. Yeah. I think it's like, you know, uh, bourbon's ruler, uh, you know, hot climate animals get smaller, you know, cold climate animals get bigger. So, you know, it's, the, it's funny seeing, you know, I've 
200 plus pound whitetail are the norm, you know, up in Ontario. And then down there, they're, they're small to help keep their body heat down when it's really hot. So, yeah, that would have been interesting for me going from hunting the, the whitetails in the bow zone of Alberta and then going down there and hunting, you know, yeah. coos deer from, you know, going from a 300 pound animal down to a hundred pound, you know, basically a similar species there. Right. So yeah, because you were up there in Alberta testing some of the new Sitka whitetail stuff, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, I was up up there in in the bow zone with uh, an, an outfitter, Jim Hole Jr. up there, and it was uh, it was an amazing experience from that side of things. I'd I'd love to try hunting some of that that uh, you know somewhat desert terrain though. That's that's on my my radar. My dad actually last year hunted. He drew a tag in New Mexico for mule deer in January and he was just talking about the interesting aspect of that at spot and stock in that you know somewhat desert type terrain and it just sounded like something that would be a lot of fun yeah I I find that you know when one of the nice things if you're fortunate fortunate enough to travel and hunt um, is you just learn things that help you other places you learn to apply different techniques and styles and learn to read sign differently. It just helps, I think, your with your overall education level and understanding of the environment and what animals do. When you were up in Alberta, did you did you still hunt stands, or were you able to get out and track in the snow? It was all all stand hunting. Yeah, we weren't we weren't allowed putting uh, boots on the ground really at all. It was trying to keep the pressure down. We were sitting over like alfalfa and hay fields type like like that, and just waiting for them to come out of the the timber. So it was, um, it was more, it was, well, it was all tree stand hunting. That is one of my, one of my favorite, if you have Northern listeners or people up in Quebec and Ontario, um, one of like my, my friends in Vermont who just, you know, live and wait for the snow to get out to track bucks in the snow and the famous family, the Benoits, their, their hunting style of, you know, you, you, you hike till you cut a big buck track in the snow and you follow it. till you find that deer. Um, and it is really like really cool going from desert where you're in glass, 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 and then you get into that eastern, really kind of intimate. You can't see very far environment. Um, you have to find you hunt deer sign, then you hunt the deer. Uh, um, and it, two, I think it was 2014. I went with a friend up to Ontario again, public land, crown land, and you know just driving the forest roads in covered in snow until you find wait get fresh snow find a good buck track, pull over and just start following it. And, um, I, uh, was able to take a, a, a nice buck doing that. I wrote a story on Sitka's blog back then. Actually a photo from that one Sitka's diverge contest in 2014. Um, I won the white tail category with a photo from that hunt. Oh, gotcha. Nice. Uh, yeah, that's just a really, really fun, active way of hunting. Um, you know, that buck and I came face to face at ten yards. So, um, and in like this really cool, just like sound room, deadened everything had every single stick, every direction had like six inches of snow on it. Yeah, and he, he just came running towards me, head down, and looked at me. He's like, "What are you doing here?" I was like, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> I was hunting with my forty-five seventy, my Marlin guide gun. I love that gun, and um. I raised it up, uh, and the, uh, the, the safeties, you know, it's traditional old school, you know, cylinder safety on the, on the kind of the right side. And it was frozen. 
I couldn't get the safety off and this buck is staring at me and I was like looking through, I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Like think, 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 how long am I? And, and I just thought to myself, cycle around, maybe the vibration of cycling around will free the safety. And sure enough, I cycled around with the lever and I felt the safety slide and all I could see was just the white, the white patch under his throat. And I just put the bullet right there and collapsed him in his tracks and fell into this tree and covered himself in snow. It was really, it's a really fun way to hunt that down here. And I just, I, every hunting season here in Tennessee, I'm just dying, um, for it to snow during, during deer season. It hasn't yet. I've only, it's only snowed afterwards and I've gone out hiking, looking for sheds or looking for old late season deer trails and finding hogs. I've, I've tracked, you know, track, track, track down hogs doing it here. But have yet to have it happen here during deer season. I've got my fingers crossed. Yeah, you know, in Pennsylvania, we we do get snow during rifle season. Sometimes it's not as much anymore. But uh, that's that's a way that my grandfather taught me to hunt. Is he was a big proponent and is a big proponent of doing that and just you know just walking or or even driving you know forest roads until you cut a track you know um, early in the morning. Or, you know, just like I said, just walk until you cut a big track and you learn a lot about a deer and Fine. how they move when you follow them like that. You know, a lot of times you don't catch up to them and or they'll, you know, somehow wind you or see you before you see them. But it you learn so much about how a deer moves by doing that. It's a it's a really fun way of hunting. That's for sure. It is. It, it, like you said, it, you learn you know, you'll learn, the more you do it, you'll learn to read a fresh track versus an older track, and you'll learn to read buck age by the track shape better, um, and what a really big buck track looks like versus just a, you know, a nice buck, um, and then, uh, you know, when, it, when you're on a track, and then it starts zigzagging, you know, and you learn, you learn to look to your right and to your left, because that's probably, when they start zigzagging a lot, that's probably a buck about to bed, and they'll usually bed with the wind looking at their back track. So, you know, you'll learn those things, um, the more you follow a deer like that, like you're saying, you'll just learn a lot more about what they do and where they like to bed. It's great finding just, just, just doing that to learn where deer bed is valuable until, and seeing the spots they like. Yeah. I, I had a guy on the podcast here recently, a good friend of mine, Johnny Stewart, and he was telling me, and he's, before I even recorded with him, I've been friends with him for a few years and he was like, he goes, Bo, go out, even if you don't have a buck tag, go out late season and just find a track and follow it. He's like, you'll learn so much about that deer, what they're eating, what they're doing, yeah. how they're moving. And, and and then if you say you do bump them, what they do with when they're pressured, you know, he goes, you learn so much by following a track like that. So that's, that's a really really interesting way to kind of learn a, a deer's behaviors, and especially, you know, an older buck. 100% agree because a lot of these older buck, you know, the older deer, they have their core areas. Well, they'll wander a bit more and, you know, those big northern deer roam a little bit more, I think, than a lot of our, you know, Appalachian deer do. But um, if it, when it does happen late, like you like you said, you know, those bucks tend to have their preferred bedding spots, usually, you know, just a handful, just, you know, uh, under half a dozen. And they tend to have their escape routes 
and when, when they're bumped the way they go. <clears throat> so you can learn a lot about, you know, if the wind is wrong and he catches you before you even know he's there, where, where he's going to go. And you'll see, you'll, you'll figure out their escape routes as well as their, their feeding areas and their bedding areas and all of it. And you may, and you may find a pretty nice shed in the process. So. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. So Damon, I had, the, the way I'd found you, uh, I, I was telling you on the phone here when we talked, uh, last week, I'd, I found a few of your articles and videos. I think it was a little over a year ago and it was, you know, a while after you actually wrote them, but you had talked about hunting in Tennessee where you're at in the, in the Appalachian region, if I'm correct. And, and actually it's funny because one of your articles is titled East meets West, isn't it? It's correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we were laughing about that. I was like, well, I guess I stole the name from you. I didn't even realize it, but <laughs> so <laughs> that's just a, it's a, I hope, I hope it works out good for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. But, um, yeah, anyways, those, those articles, they, uh, they, they really resonated with me cause I'm like, wow, look, someone else is, you know, hunting, the style that, you know, that I grew up doing and that, that, I, that I love to do. And you were doing it in Tennessee. And that's another reason that made me realize that there's a lot more people that are doing this, you know, throughout the East Coast and the Appalachian region than I originally anticipated. You know, I kind of thought I was in my own little bubble. But uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how you're hunting in Tennessee and specifically with deer? Sure. Yeah, so you know, I wrote that article. It was the very first article on the Orion Coolers blog. I wrote that article literally when we launched the web page, and we just needed you know an, an article, some kind of content. Um, and you know, when I when I moved here, you know, I'd already done some hunt, I'd done some traveling hunts at you know, um, hunted caribou in Quebec, and um, you know, I, it was on that hunt that I really learned um, to pack an animal. Uh, and to quarter an animal in the field. Um, and that's kind of the, one of the key skills, I think, that anybody aspiring to be hunt more backcountry and hunt more public land has to learn because you're just not going to drag a deer out. Um, it's going to be coming out in pieces. And you got to understand your state regulations for what's allowed and what's not. In Tennessee, you have to leave evidence of sex, um, which is pretty common for a lot of states. It means leaving something attached to the ham so you can distinguish buck or doe, part of this part of the scrotum or part of the female genitalia. Um, and um, so when, when I moved here from Vermont, and Vermont's got a lot of great public land in the National Fork with pretty low deer densities. You know, down here in the south in Tennessee, there's, there's pretty good deer densities from what I'm used to. Um, uh, and a lot of public land, a lot of wildlife management areas. You know, there's a state. I live. I live. I'm almost surrounded by a ring of public land where I live. Um, I have you know, Firestone, Bridgestone, WMA. There's. I live. We live kind of on the Cumberland Plateau. So, the Appalachians, when they come down, kind of if you're on the west sides, Cumberland Plateau region, and it's just a lot of. It's relatively flat, and then a very kind of steep drop off kind of runs along like the Chattanooga area and near us, and a lot of creeks, a lot of canyon country steep country, great white water because of that. <laughs> um, and so, you know, when I moved here and I started looking for places to hunt, it was, okay, well, I got this public land, this direction, I got this public land. I live, we live uh, right next to Bledsoe state forest. Um, so they just all kind of options. Um, and even there's a state park right here, Fall Creek Falls state park that even has a, a one week only bow only hunt 
on it even you know not, not a lot of state parks anywhere allow hunting um but this one does um for that one week um and so at any rate um i would you know i started asking around uh you know oh these different areas you know how much pressure and pressure and and one of the spots that i had inquired about was like oh no they're like told oh nobody hunts in there you know deer just good old and die in there you can't get one out and i was like you know ring 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 <laughs> you know yeah. okay Sure. That sounds, yeah. He's like, you know, people just told, oh, you can't get a four wheeler in there. You know, there's no way to get deer out. You know, it's a, it's, it's very steep. You know, it's, it's a couple miles to get in, but it's more steep. You gotta go down, hike down, you know, about 700 feet, 500 feet of vertical, depending on, anyway, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's a terrain limiter for most people. Um, and so I started exploring it. Um, and the geology here is just really cool. Uh, every time I, I hike in the woods here, I seem to find something neat. Um, uh, and there's just a lot of, there's a lot of caves. There's a lot of waterfalls and our rivers, like they're there one second and gone the next, like they literally go underground. So there's, you know, there's limestone, a lot of limestone here. So there's aquifers underground. And if the aquifer is not full of water, the surface water won't run. So they're literally, the river might be there. And then in, tenth of a mile it's gone it's gone it's gone underground into a hole um and it's not until we've had days of rain that the river will actually run everywhere on the surface so there's weird things like that happen there's waterfalls that come out of a canyon wall and then they go into a sinkhole and they're gone again (laughs) it's crazy stuff um but it's really neat to to see um so i started hunting you know exploring those kind of areas and and you know, there's no way, again, there's, there's no way to, to get a deer out. You're not going to, you're not going to field dress it and carry it unless you're far more of a man than I am. Um, you're going to, you know, you're going to be quartering that deer and putting it on a backpack. And that just became a lot of, you know, my style that I like, that I like to do. Um, I, you know, I go, I'll, I'll do, I'll do overnighters. I'll do some, some multi days. I'll do day hunts. You know, my day hunts generally start, I'll get up at three or four and I'm hiking, um, you know, by four or five, by four or five. And I'm usually not too where I, some of the spots I like to sit until sunrise. So an hour and a half, two hours later. Um, and sometimes there's river crossings and I have to carry in waders, um, you know, to get across. Um, sometimes I don't have to do that. Um, but it's, um, it's, you know, it's wild deer. I mean, they're not, there's no managed anything in that, in these areas, there's no fields, there's no, you know, you're not, you're not figuring out, you're not patterning a deer by the way enters and leaves, you know, an ag, an ag field. It's, you know, you're hiking until you find sign, you're hiking until you find a tree that's dropping, um, acorns or you're, you know, you're hiking and you're figuring out where the doe like to bed. And then, you know, when are the, on on depending on the winds what's the what's the downwind side that buck's gonna come by to find the does that bed in that area on uh, to check them when the rut's on um you know you see the early to late season transitions you see them transitioning you know to eating briars in the last you know as you know hunting in the south goes we're pretty green you know for a lot of the hunting season it's not until you know mid-december that the woods really start getting brown. And then that's usually the ruts very much tailing down or over and deer kind of move to late season feeding and there's the acorns are gone. So they start eating briars and different kind of undergrowth. Um, and 
the trails become more defined again. And so just learning all of those aspects. Um, and that was an article I wrote was East meets West was, okay, I gotta, you know, understand the pressure equation then understand the hunting equation and how to get the animal out. <clears throat> um, and kind of some of the, the thought process of, of how that worked together. And, um, I think on that one, I had shot that same 4570 that I use in Ontario. I shot a kind of a cool, kind of almost palmated buck. He was pretty neat. I shot him on, it is it the only buck I've still shot on Thanksgiving morning. That was pretty cool. Oh, nice. Were you able to get back for Thanksgiving dinner in time? I was, I had him, I had him home in my fridge by one. Perfect. I was going to say that that's, uh, that, that would be the ticket there. Got to get back for the Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, did um so when you said you you know you're packing you're quartering up the deer and that's you know similar to what I do or well, it is what I do you know in Pennsylvania in some of these spots that are back in and you and I talked about it on the phone offline from the podcast here uh, as far as how that's just such a preferred way of doing it for you now and it has been for me just from the aspect of you you one when you're by yourself getting that deer out dragging it is very tough where if you put it on your your back and you have you know a backpack that can carry weight comfortably and you can get it out of there as well as when you get back the work's done from the the standpoint of you don't have to hang it and skin it and and do all that it's already done you know by the time you get back yeah, you know, most most of the time here, we're not cold enough to really leave a deer hanging outside for multiple days. Anyway, um, uh, there is there is a hunt that I filmed. Um, with, it was the original Ryan Chronicles, and I did a hunt muzzleloader, um, and I actually took a buck, uh, two different bucks, two different days, and you know, I hung, I hung one in game bag. I hung the first one in game bags, uh, like at the mouth of this cave. That's where I know that there's cold air out coming out when it's warmer. I think it was like 70 degrees that day. So I, I hung the, the quarter deer at the mouth of this cave um, for the night uh, just because that's the coldest air that I knew of during the day. Um, and then the next morning, shot. I just used his rack. I cut his rack off, and I rattled in a, a, a really nice buck with that rack the next morning. Um, and that's... And I was hunting on the ground, you know, mobile. Um, that's there's a video that's on YouTube, the Ryan Chronicles on YouTube, um, and you know I couldn't do that again if I tried a hundred times. It just everything came together. <laughs> um, but you know, getting that meat out, then I was like, oh man, you know, I got multiple loads. You know, I was starting to get worried about just one day in those kind of temps, hanging in the, the first deer overnight um, to get all that out. Um, and get it into the fridge. But t generally, like you said, you know, if I cut it, if I cut it up, um, I'll get it into meat trays in my refrigerator, um, to age for a few days or just, you know, then I'll, then I'll get through it. But usually, um, you get home. Yeah. You don't have a lot of work to do. It's already, it's either deboned or bone in, but either way it can go right into meat trays in the fridge, um, and get, start getting cool. You can also, you can also cool them down in your eye. Usually I'll keep the eye in the back of the truck full of ice, depending on how long the drive is. Um, and get them in there, and you can also keep the keep them in there for days on end if you want. Um, I've, I know a lot of guys here who 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 will age their meat in a cooler, um, so uh, you just need layers of ice, and um, and you can do that too. So, yeah, it, 
it saves, it changes, um, it just changes how you look at the terrain. You know, I've, I've heard a lot of people, oh, you know, I can't go, I, I won't go there because it's too far, I'm in too deep. You know, I don't, don't even hunt these places because they feel like they can't get their game out. And, you know, if you, if you, if you Google the gutless method, um, that tends to be how I deal with my meat. Um, you know, I don't even gut it. It's, you know, it's a, a slit down the spine, you know, peel that hide and take off the back strap, take off each quarter, take off the neck. Um, and then take, you can take out the, the inside tenderloins um, by just doing a little slit and reaching in, pulling it, and then roll the animal over, and then repeat. You peel the other side down. You can you can cut that hide and lay it on the ground as like a nice just somewhere to lay your meat. I just, I'll do that, or I'll lay them in a like a rhododendron or some other convenient you know tree strong enough to hold the weight. Or I'll take the whole quarter off and just you know hang it hang it on a pine tree nub and and then I'll debone it you know at my leisure before the bees and stuff get on it. But um, it uh, yeah it just it opens up so much more terrain when you have that skill and you're comfortable doing it. Um, and uh, you know I encourage everybody to you know start you know start small um, you know do it learn to learn to quarter. Uh, an, an animal when you don't need to do it, you know, do it when you're hunting a field or do it when you're hunting an area where, you know, you, you can, there's no pressure to do it. Um, you can make mistakes, no big deal and, and do it. And then, um, you know, go on a backpacking trip where you're not actually, um, carrying a weapon Just learn what it takes to be a backpacker, you know, and then put two and two together. And then the next time, you know, then you, then you got a gun and then you got, you know, comfort level of, of what it takes to carry it around. You do have to have the right kind of pack. You know, there's not all, a lot of packs can do it, but there are packs that definitely do it better than others. Um, traditional backpacking packs, you can use a mountaineering or a climbing pack and you can get the job done. But, you know, packs that have dedicated meat chambers, packs that have internal load systems to, to keep that meat weight up against your back and, store a weapon and the meat and gear, you know, they're a reason that they exist because they do a good job. Yeah. What, um, is there a specific pack that you like to use for, let's, let's just go with day hunting. If you're going to go in for a day hunt and then pack out a deer, is there one that you choose to use? Well, first I will disclaimer that I'm a pack junkie. Um, and, and I, you know, these have been proud of the development. I love to try trying them all, see which ones I like, don't like. Um, so there is an article on the Orion blog. I wrote what's in my, what's in my day pack. And it's what I would carry, um, uh, to get a deer out here. And that pack was the Sitka's Bivy 30, um, uh, in subalpine. And that's, that's got a kind of a bigger outer pocket. So I can put all of my the clothes that I'll have for that day into that when I have to, and use the main chamber for meat. Um, and you know, for a day pack, I'm looking for something usually at least 30 liters for a whitetail deboned um, to get it out. <clears throat> uh, and then, but there's the the EXO Mountain Gear. You, you know, um, they're good guys made in USA out of Idaho. Their pack is a different style, but the main pack body separates, and then you can pack your meat bag in between the pack body and the in the pack frame frame and kind of sandwich it back together. Those do really good. Um, I'm a big fan of Everly, Glenn Everly, Everly Stocks packs. Um, you know, they're just one kind of a very unique uh, kind of center opening. The pack kind of unfolds vertically, and then there's kind of meat chamber that's that's left right in the middle and filling that. That's what I use in my first caribou hunt. Um, 
there's you know there's those different styles um you know and then carrying a gun versus a bow you know it kind of dictates which pack i'll use um everly has a cool system of a scabbard down your spine he came he comes from a biathlon background skiing so he kind of came up with came up with packs that didn't interfere with his cross-country motion he was an olympian um and then keeping that weight and that gun centered on your spine is very comfortable but then having the meat chamber of beyond it um was kind of a, a unique evolution um so it's uh you know the new and now the new sitka's got um the new mountain hauler series um I've, I've been pleased with them i've been testing the mountain hauler 4000 which just came out um and that's why i use the coos deer hunt and that's what i used uh, this fall um hunting here and i packed a deer out with it um so it's 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 uh there's a lot of good options you know when it comes to packs it's kind of like shoes right you gotta you gotta everybody's body's different you gotta find the one that you can carry well light and then uh, doesn't make a lot of noise to me um you know works with my body um and brings what i need for the day which generally on day hunt i'm just gonna have you know insulated kind of jacket of some sort i'll have meat bags i'll have knives i'll have you know whatever safety or med kit or you know gps communicator i have to carry one here there's no cell phone service um where i hunt so i'll have that to get a hold of my wife or friends if i'm gonna be late um and that article i wrote on what's in my day packs on sickness but you see everything specifically about what i carry on a day hunt um on the orion coolers blog um and then yeah then overnight gear just adds into that and changes kind of the pack but i look for packs that are quiet uh, comfortable kind of empty and then you know, comfortable loaded. And that's obviously a bit of an oxymoron, you know, no, I, I, I've never been comfortable carrying any huge heavy load out, yeah. <laughs> but it's, uh, there are, there are packs that it's not, it's painful, you know, and it's not fitted right to you. It's, it, you're going to have a bad day. So, um, and it goes to footwear too, you know, you, you're not going to do a hunt like that in sneakers. You got to have a boot that can carry the weight and support your body structure, ankle structure, um, with that much weight in it. So, um lots of details there <laughs> yeah 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 no I, I i get you and and from the the boot thing um just real quick a point that i want to add and and you're you're kind of um you're kind of leading to this but we're not wearing you know rubber boots like your typical whitetail hunter would because that just doesn't work as far as when you come to go to pack out a deer, you know, I'm, I'm using something with that has some support and, and also it's light enough and breathable enough that you're not, you know, sweating and everything when you're walking and, and able to traverse through some, you know, relatively steep terrain. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm generally not, um, uh, sitting still a long time. So I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not wearing, heavily insulated boots you know um if it's super cold i'll just put little toe warmers you know in my sock kind of thing um i'm not i'm not i'm not bringing heavy insulated you know uh 600 grams insulate kind of boots um i i, I wear scarpa boots from my mountaineering background they fit my i have a very narrow low volume foot that that i've always been comfortable in scarpa's mountaineering boots um so that tends to be what i hike in um and you know, you got to find a foot, a boot that fits your foot shape, and there are definitely different brands that fit better foot shapes better than others. Uh, <clears throat> um, but yeah, it's 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 a different game, and you know, and, and if, if it's below freezing, you know, yeah, my feet will get cold, but by the time I get hiking, they warm up. So yeah, no, that's and and you um, 
you don't hunt much from a tree stand, you were saying, right? I, I It's probably 50-50, and it kind of depends on the time of year. I, I certainly hunt heavier from tree stands during archery season just because, you know, the, the range factor, getting close. Um, uh, so I'll have spots that I'll use that I'll hunt, tend to hunt during archery season, um, you know, a little differently than once, once muzzleloader um, and then – rifle comes on so you know the weapon that i hunt with and i'll hunt with my bow sometimes during rifle season you know i tend to uh rain and i call i call a hashtag freezer function you know the weapon that i hunt with is the direct reflection of how much meat i need yeah um, and if i if i had, if I had a great archery season you know i'll hunt with my traditional bow or i'll hunt with my compound bow you know later into the season um because i'm more looking you know for a unique experience and trying to solve that problem i'm not my filling my freezer isn't a priority at that point. Um, but then there's years, you know, this year is a good example where I didn't get anything, um, you know, during archery or muzzleloader. Um, uh, I let everything walk and, you know, looking back, yeah, it would have changed my season had I just taken, you know, some smaller, younger animals and then wouldn't have felt pressure. But then you know, <laughs> it's like, finally, uh, we have some family property in South Carolina. And when I went over there for after the holidays with my rifle, it was game on, you know, it was like, yeah, if I see a doe in the field, <laughs> I'm shooting her. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, I put three deer in the freezer, you know, in three days, you know, and sure. If I changed the, the way I hunted here, it, it, it would have changed things too. But you know, the, everybody makes their own post, their own personal choices and priorities. Um, about what, you know, how they want to hunt and what they're looking to get out of it. Um, meat's a big one for me, but, um, you know, usually I, I hope to take a deer during archery. Um, muzzleloader season here, which is early November, tends to be when a lot of the big bucks get seen. Um, more mature bucks, they're, you know, in that early kind of seeking phase of the rut. Um, and then, uh, you know, switching to rifle to later. And, but if I've, you know, filled, you're allowed two bucks in Tennessee. Um, you know, uh, I didn't fill either this year. Um, but past years, you know, if I'll, f- if I fill one during archery, then I'll kind of relax, you know, what, what I do with the other ones. And that, that one filming year, you know, I shot both my bucks during muzzleloader in the same weekend. So I, you know, that year was easy. I tagged out that weekend and I hunted with my trad bill the rest of the, the rest of the season for does. So, <clears throat> yeah, um, no, that's cool. That's, um, so, so I, that film actually too, I, I did watch that and would highly recommend everyone take a look at it. It's a really cool film as you don't see too many Appalachian style uh, hunting films out there. So I'd definitely recommend, you know, taking a look at that and, and checking it out from, from that side of things. And one, one other point I wanted to add just from, uh, to when you were talking about how you stuff, you know, like hand warmers or anything in your socks uh one thing that i do when i wear uninsulated boots i can't remember if i've talked about this on the podcast at all but i'll wear you know my uninsulated loas or i have uh, a pair of crispy boots that just have 400 gram insulate pretty lightweight that i can still wear when it's cold weather hunting but they don't my feet don't sweat as much when i get to a tree stand or a place i'm going to sit i have these little slippers that go over top my boots that have a slot for a hand warmer. And actually the company that I have is, I think they're out of business. You can't find them anymore. They're called hot mocks. And I found them on eBay for like $12 and 95 cents. It was the best money I ever spent 
because I just I just throw like one of the big body warmers in there and I'm good sitting all day with those over uninsulated boots down in temperatures in the teens so it's pretty it's a pretty nice uh little addition there that lightweight they clip right on the back of my pack and that's it cool yeah one of the another cool i don't know if they still make them but out the brand outdoor research you know makes various styles of gators and from my ice climbing days i have a pair of their like overboot gators they're basically gators that hooker on the toe of your boot but instead of just like covering ankle up they cover the entire boot um, up to your shins, um, but then the sole's exposed, so you can wear a crampon climbing ice. Yeah. Um, and in inside, it's full Gore-Tex, but then inside w- what covers your boot, there's kind of a du- dual layer, and you can insert sheets of foam, different density or thickness of foam into that, depending on how warm it is. And those make a huge difference. Um, when it's cold, I, I've kept on it. That's a piece of gear that I've kind of kept over the years. Um, to, that's nice. Um, and I'll carry, I've carried, like I've tried doing packable down booties, um, which, you know, Sierra designs may, have made some, I don't, I don't know the brands that make them now, but Mountaineer, not a Mountaineers carry them. Um, when, like once you're in your tent, you know, sleeping on slides of mountains on big, on big, high altitude climbs um and uh those those can i I put those on a tree before i've taken my boots off (laughs) and put those oh really oh yeah yeah it's probably not good for sit probably not good for sit management (laughs) you know putting putting you taking boots off and putting them under your seat um but my feet stayed warm, so. Hey, uh, and you're in the stand longer, and that's what that's what matters, right? Exactly. I think the mint and the wind to me, the wind matters more anyway. So. Yep, I'm I'm in the same boat from that that aspect. But all right, Damon, one other thing that was interesting that you brought up to me was you're into are are you into training tracking dogs or what's your what's your deal with tracking dogs? Yeah. So yeah. Well, so I have uh this year. Um, uh, well, he's two years old now. It's the second season, but yeah, I got a. I, I just have my own. I don't train others. Um, I got a what's called a Teckel. Um, so Teckel, basically, in Teckel, and you know, in Germany or, or Europe, just means any dachshund. But here and here in the U.S., a Teckel is used to kind of denote a wire hair of German hunting lines, so like real working dachshunds. You know, most people think of dachshunds as you know, sausage wiener dog, lap dogs, but. They were bred as working dogs um, originally. Um, they were bred, you know, to hunt underground. So they were bred to go into holes, fox, badger, um, and for tracking. And they're they're really good um, at uh, tracking lost game. So I had met some uh, tracking service. There's a there's a hunting show up in Vermont called the Yankee Sportsman's Classic, um, and there was a group there kind of showing their dogs for deer recovery. You know, a hunter shoots a deer, loses it. Um, dogs to go find it and dachshunds tackles are kind of sought after um for that application um you know in europe most uh, hunting guides or, or game managers you know you have to have a dog available for recovery by law in some places um uh, you know the culturally there recovering the animal is is the number one priority and justifiably so you know it's you know you've taken that responsibility to take the animal's life it's up to you to, you know you should, you should do everything in your power to find it um, 
and dachshunds have a really good people think they're smelling blood but in actuality there's what's called an interdigital gland there's a scent gland in between the hoof pads of a deer and it's a unique scent <laughs> so good tracking dogs um track with no blood at all and they can follow that deer for quite a long for you know hundreds of years not miles just off his scent pad um so and teckles are really good at it. they're really they're stubborn dogs and you know dachshunds are bred um you know they're not like labs they're not uh they're not looking to please you they're kind of looking to please themselves but they were bred to be independent hunters they were bred to figure out the problem on their own and find the animal um and that's what makes them good. They're really good. They're stubborn, but they're really good at staying on a particular deer scent and distinguishing that deer scent over other deer scent, um, and finding it have a really strong prey drive. So, so I got, I got Jaeger, um, couple, he's two now, a couple seasons ago from a, a, there's only a couple breeders in North America that breed teckles, um, and they're registered in Germany at the Deutsch Teckle Club and, um, started training them. And they're introduced at a very young age here. The breeders are serious and, you know, they, they, they're putting deer hooves and legs uh, into the puppies' whelping pens at very, very young ages um, and kind of building a prairie drive. And um, last season, I took them, you know, on various hunts. I just in, tried to just introduce them to scents. And, you know, you got to smell whitetail, wild boar, antelope, mule deer, um, and do a couple you know, training tracks. I'd shoot it. If I shot a deer, just go get him and let him go smell it kind of thing. Um, and follow it. And then in the off season, you know, training, doing mock tracks. And you can do that with, with different deer parts, doing drags, um, using blood, using trees, different things to, to, for the dog to, to find at the end. Um, and he always just blows my mind. Um, and so this year was the first year though, that we started, you know, taking calls for the public. And there's a, there's a group called United blood trackers online. And no matter where you live in the States, um, they're working with state legislatures all over the country to legalize tracking, leashed tracking in those states or just tracking in general. Most states you have to track on lead. Um, some states do not require it. Um, but, uh, in Tennessee, it is a leash tracking state. And but you can go there if you shoot a deer and lose it. You can go there and you can find a tracker in your area, um, contact them, and they can come help you find your deer. Um, and so that just kind of fascinated me. Um, I just thought that's what a great way. You know, you don't see a lot of hunting dogs use it that way. Um, you know, just what a valuable resource. And you know, and there's some trackers in the country. You know, I think this year there's amongst United Blood Trackers people registered. They're doing a kind of a summary poll right now of what all was tracked. And they're tracking, you know, deer, moose, elk, bear. You know, people contact you when they lose dogs. I think there were two lost dogs found this year. Uh, you know, there's um, – but I think they're up around 900 deer recovered that were lost by just by UBT members. Um, you know, we did six – I only did six tracks, you know, not for me, just six tracks for the public this year. Um, and we found four and the other two um, – we didn't find were either confirmed alive or dead. Um, where Jaeger said they were one, we had to stop because of the property line we weren't allowed to cross, and the deer was on the other side. Um, and the land that deer was found the next day by vultures, and you know the hunter contacted me and said, "Hey, the deer's where Jaeger said it was." Um, and the other one, they got on game camera alive. You know, three weeks later. Um, so, so yeah, tr you know, training them. Um, was kind of fun and you, you kind of see you kind of know the end result um and then this season was the first you know the first call came in i was actually 
uh, guiding uh, hunt for wounded veterans. Um, Tennessee Wildlife, TWRA, does a, a hunt for veterans on a property near Chattanooga owned by, or it's right by a Volkswagen factory. It's a public park, but it's kind of overrun by deer, and they close it off for one weekend a year, and we bring in um, wounded vets and you know take them hunting and try to pull as many deer out as possible, and each vet's allowed a couple, uh, two deer. At any rate, um, I was supposed to go down there to be, help be one of the guides, um, and SCI and TWRA put, put that on, and I got a call the morning of going down for like the meet and greet by a young hunter. Um, uh, he had shot a buck the day before, crossbow, um, saw it run, knew he hit it, um, you know, found blood for a while, bumped it from a bed, and then couldn't find it, and then... It rained. Him and his father looked that night. Then it rained heavy that night, and then they went back in the morning and couldn't find it. And then he went online and went online and found me. And it just so happened that I was going to be like a half an hour from where he had been hunting for this wounded veterans hunt. So I was like, you know, can you come help? And it's, this is literally Jaeger's first, you know, what I would call a real track. You know, totally code call. You know, I didn't know what the animal was. All those kind of things, um, and stranger you know all the whole bit so um i was like yeah let me go let me go drop the stuff off i had a bunch of uh, kind of prizes and giveaways i collected from friends in the industry and sponsors to give to the veterans and then i was like let me go drop this stuff off and then i'll come help you and it was about 3 30 when i got to where he'd been hunting so roughly it was roughly 20 hours after he shot that deer um and jaeger you know he's kind of he kind of pointed out where he thought the deer had gone and where he thought it would be bedded and jaeger was kind of following following and we found some obvious blood um and then then all the sign went away and the hunters you know i felt oh they thought they thought they saw it go this way jaeger saw me go a different way which is often often the case you know a lot of times a hunter can see a deer run and they don't know if it's their deer or not their deer and things can get confusing um dogs know a lot um and we ended up following for a couple few hundred yards and no sign at all um and i actually stopped to check my gps look at the satellite on my phone kind of orient myself and i was like oh he's on a different deer he is you know he he's just following a deer right now he doesn't know what he's on and then when i actually took my phone out and looked down at my phone just so happened there was a white rock a foot from my right boot and there was three drops of blood on it and i was like oh my god he's still on this freaking deer (laughs) um and I was like, okay, keep going. And so he kept going. Then he got kind of lost interest. And and I was like, okay, let's go back and restart him, reset him at that where we know the deer was, and look at that rock. And I went back, and you know, you always hear that wounded deer run downhill, or wounded deer go to water. Um, but when I looked at the rock, I could see the blood spider, the fingers pointing up the mountainside, not running the slope down the side like we were doing. And I was like, this deer at this point had looped. He, he either he, either he was whatever reason he was running uphill at this point. He wasn't side sloping it. Um, and sure enough, Jaeger then started heading straight up the mountainside. Um, and you know, we got I was crawling hands and knees through this underbrush, and then it got into the gnarliest briar patch I've ever seen, like briars diameter my thumb and twelve feet tall. Um, and that buck was laying twenty yards into that stuff. Really. Yeah, and you know, hunters were blown away. I was blown away. <laughs> I was like, "You're an amazing. You just blew my mind, dog." Uh, and 
and that was kind of the start of this year's tracking season. Um, and there's, I did that, that video is on my personal YouTube page, Damon Bungard. You can, people can find it. And there's three videos of him tracking now. That buck is on there, which is a beautiful 14 point with kickers, gorgeous buck. Um, and then a doe, a doe he found for me, which is, this is a good example. I, you know, I shot a doe with my bow during rifle season. Um, and, just made a weird sound I'd never heard. It was it was very hollow and kicking a pumpkin kind of sound. And I was like, oh, no, I shot that deer back. Um, and I got down from my tree stand and walked to, you know, saw the arrow, a little bit of blood, um, not much. Uh, oh, and the arrow looked, you know, decent, but, the, but at the hit site, it was just white hair. And I was like, oh, I shot her low in the gut. You know, that was my reaction was, my, you know, funky, sol- funky sound and white belly hair. This can't be good, right? So I just left. I didn't even look for that deer. I just, you know, saved the spot where she, where the arrow was and where the fur was and went home and waited four hours. Now, you know, here we, there's a lot of coyotes where I hunt um, there. I'd already shot one with my bow earlier that year, um, earlier this year, and seen many others. And so I didn't want to leave her overnight. Um, and so that's always comes into a factor of how long you wait, you know, what is the Cody factor where you are? Um, and so I went and got Jaeger and came back and turns out that deer hadn't run 100, 150 yards. Um, they'd gone, kind of gone over this rise and there it was. And Jaeger went right to it and he didn't mess around. I mean, he was, there was no blood for like 40, 40, 50 yards. Um, and he smelled, he smelled the white fur and then the blood started and then he went right to her. So that was just a safety factor, you know, um, had I not had the dog, I probably would have found that deer, but it's much easier, you know, when, when, you know, he knows what he's doing. Um, and then his, his last track of the season was another just mind blower. Um, a hunter, not far, about an hour for me, um, shot a buck at nine in the morning, 30, 30 down, down the side of his face, um, had great blood for hundred yards. I mean, you know, nice pools. Anybody would look at that and say, Oh, it's a dead deer, nice blood. But then it just stopped. And so we got there around the, uh, I think it was around four, three, four, um, after he'd been shot that morning and he had, the hunter had, the, the hunter had done great. He had, he had not grid searched, you know, when he knew he was going to find a dog, he just kind of backed out. And there's a good, there's also a Tennessee blood trailing network group, a good network of trackers here in Tennessee. Um, and he was cool because he was from New York and there's a, there's a tackle breeder in New York and the guy who literally wrote the book, John Janini, and there's, and there's a book of blood trailing dogs for finding wounded deer. Um, and he's a tackle breeder. Um, and he had seen or heard of the, his dogs and ha- actually lived only a few hours from them before he moved to Tennessee. So he was kind of blown away. Oh, look at the little dog, you know, look at the little, uh, you know, the yeah, anchor's 23 pounds, but you know, looks like a, doesn't look like much of a, you know, a hunting killer kind of dog, <laughs> but you know, when he starts tracking, he goes crazy. And sure enough, the hunter done great. He hadn't grid search, which often spreads a lot of scent. The dog, you know, makes it harder. Um, it, you know, if he, he did everything right, the hunter did back out, marked the hit site and we took it and Jaeger followed it down off this mountain. And, you know, he followed a scent for a while into this, like somebody's backyard. And then, kind of looped back, gave up, brought, came back on his own, went down a different gully, and I just see a drop of blood. And I was like, oh, wow, he's still on this deer. And then he dropped, we dropped off the mountain, 
across the creek and right on the small creek edge there was a one little drop of blood and then it hit the road and then i saw a little drop of blood on the road and then the deer crossed the road and then jumped the barbed wire fence into these big cut fields just field after field after field and we had seen some fur on the barbed wire fence where he had jumped so knew he was still on it and then we're calling different landowners getting permission to go um, now crossing into different properties and uh jaeger that field was hard for him. He just kind of was running these big loops, these big like sweeping, you know, I think there was been a lot of deer in there or cows or who knows, but he was just kind of doing these loops, you know, and then finally settled on a line and we went for hundreds of yards, um, with no sign. And then, you know, went through this gap in a gap in a barbed wire fence, separating another field and no sign. I was like, well, if you're still on it, there's gotta be a sign in here. Looked around, looked around, couldn't see anything. Um, and then he's heading for this other fence line that I could see dense, pretty dense, uncut field behind it. And right at that fence line, here's this bloody blade of grass after six, seven hundred, eight hundred yards of nothing. Um, there's a you know a bloody weed, um, and I knew he was still on it. And then you could see where that deer had run along that fence um, for about fifty yards. I think he was probably feeling pretty weak at that point, looking for a place to cross. Finally, had found a place to cross, and laying was laying dead twenty yards over the fence in that dense brush. Wow, that's amazing! And that—that's a video. I've, I put a video of that one on on my channel too on YouTube. And that was, you know, this is all just POV stuff. Um, yeah, home edited, but it—it it blew my. You know, it's amazing what these train tracking dogs can do. Um, and. You know, it's just like kind of like the tracking in the snow conversation. It's just helped me learn a lot about what wounded deer really do. Yeah. You know, it's it's not that they don't just run downhill. You know, they're going to run where they feel secure and, and back to their bedding area. They loop back a lot. They backtrack often. Um, yeah. You know, they it's just neat seeing a dog figure that out. It's just he's mind blowing what he's able to do. Yeah. Um, and you know, what's, what's crazy is in Pennsylvania, just this past year, they legalized, uh, being able to use tracking dogs. And I had looked up, so I, someone had told me about the United blood trackers. Is it organization? How's that? United blood trackers.org. Yeah. And someone gave me that website before, and I looked it up and was ahead of season to find trackers in my area. And there's none like really close, but there's, you know, a couple within an hour to an hour and 15 minutes away. And I made sure that I wrote down those phone numbers in case, you know, you come to that situation. Cause that's, that's awesome that you're able to do that. And I don't understand why that wouldn't be legalized you know, in every state to be able to help find, you know, wounded game, in, yeah, in yeah, my I, opinion. I think, I think there's just some old, you know, some old stigmas around if you're running deer with dogs, you know, um, which is, you know, not legal in most states, actually, you know, using dogs to drive deer. Um, and it's just people understanding and legislating, you know, people making the laws, understanding, you know, what a, what a, a, a leashed dog or a trained recovery dog can actually do. And it honestly, I mean, you know, I've been able to hunt a lot and, um, fortunate in that respect, it's a great feeling helping somebody find their deer and it's, and, and it's, it's fun seeing the dog work. And it's really, it's like a game of, it's like hunting with plus a game of clue, you know, <laughs> you know, you, you're, and it is a team effort, you know, in a lot of these cases, you know, it's me, 
you know, you're going to decide, are you going to reset the dog? Is it reading the sign that, that rocks a good example? Um, you know, going back and studying a little bit more, um, and, and helping the dog, um, but also listening to the dog, you know, reading his body language. You can kind of tell when he's, when he's, he'll, he'll get vocal. He'll bark when he's on a really hot deer and, um, uh, and he'll bark when he's near a live one. Um, and it was funny cause, uh, uh, I guess his mother is known for if she does, she's pretty quiet on the track, but if she starts barking, that, that means the deer is within 50 yards. Like that's kind of the handlers just learned that with his mother. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, I think, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of good breeds, you know, there's, there's a, most dogs can be trained to do it. Um, some dogs are just, you know, more suited than others. Um, uh, but it's, you know, obviously there's, there's the bloodhounds of the world and curs and, and, and catahoulas and there's different, um, different breeds that are well suited. Um, but, uh, it's amazing seeing a, seeing a tackle work. That's for sure. <clears throat> yeah, no, that's awesome. That's, that's really cool to, to hear that. And, and I didn't know, I'm, I'm going to have to check out your, your YouTube channel to, to take a look at those videos. That just blows my mind that, that, uh, dogs are able to do that and just how much, I guess, better they are at that than we are. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, you know, recovering deer is a, it's a skill. It's part of hunting. Um, and, uh, you know, nobody wants to have to use a dog. I mean, but you know, you don't, you don't get a dog when it's easy. You know? Yeah. Usually you shoot a you shoot a deer and if you make a good reasonably good shot that deer is usually dead within a hundred yards. Um, uh, but it's when they're not, you know, what do you do? And um, uh, using a recovery dog as a trained one is no doubt. I'm fully now convinced that there's no better solution than. I mean, I mean, if you bow hunt long enough, I'm going to use bow hunting for an example because it seems to happen a little more. But even gun hunting. You're, you're going to make a bad shot at some point, no matter how much you practice, no matter how you know good the, sh- the, the shot felt. There's always going to be a situation, unfortunately, when you make a less than ideal shot. So that's uh, an extremely valuable resource to have to be able to, to find you know, a blood tracking dog and handler in the area. Yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. It's just it's, you hunt long enough, something's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, I, I do believe in the responsibility of, of recovering anything that you that you shoot um, or doing your due diligence. You know, maybe it is only wounded and survives, but you should still do your, whatever your due diligence is. And, um, you know, dogs aren't always available. But if one is, I, I just can't recommend enough getting that handler out there. <clears throat> awesome. So, Damon, is there anything else um, from the, the side of the blood tracking dogs or Anything with hunting in Tennessee? Anything else that you want to cover here before we uh, before we part ways? Yeah, I've been mean, talking for a while. Um, yeah, I, I told you an hour, but I knew that this uh, this conversation was probably going to go a little longer than that. Yeah, so maybe, I, I maybe apologize. Next <laughs> maybe next time we'll get into kayak hunting and get access, and uh, uh, you know, check out Orion Kennels. A little plug there, our new Orion Kennels brand um, that we're launching. Uh, and if you have a dog, um, check out uh, that book by John Janini, the, the trailing dog, trail, blood trailing dogs for finding wounded deer. It's on Amazon or their their website, Born to Track. Um, and feel free, if anybody listeners have any questions, feel free to reach out. Happy to 
share what I can when I can. You can look me up, just Damon, D-A-M-O-N, at Orion Coolers or at Jackson Kayak or at Orion Kennels. And um, happy to help when and where I can. But yeah, kayak hunting. Next time we'll talk kayak hunting. Yeah, let's do that. I, I'm interested to hear about that topic myself and and I'm sure a lot of other people would be too. So we'll we'll definitely revisit that at, uh, at another time. Is So where else, I mean, you had talked about it all through the podcast here, but where else can people find more information on some of your writings, some of your content, your videos, everything else, and also with the Ryan Coolers? Sure. So RyanCoolers.com, you know, you can find the product information there, shop, all that kind of fun stuff. But there's also, um, you know, there's learn and there's, there's drop down menus and you can see blog posts, um, many of which I've written. There's, you know, a good eight part series on do it yourself, caribou in Alaska. There's the what's in my day pack, those kind of articles, you know, how to process, uh, how to do your own euro mounts for skulls. Those are all kind of how-tos that I've written on there. Um, and then on the Jackson Kayak website, you know, you can see all of our kayaks from whitewater to kayak fishing to recreational. But there's also blog posts in there where you can go on our team members like myself and, and find the articles we've written. Um, and then I'm on Instagram, just at Damon Bungard, YouTube at Damon Bungard, Facebook, Damon Bungard. Uh, and then check out Jaeger's page, Jaeger's at, at Jaeger Tracks, J-A-E-G-E-R Tracks. Um, check him out. He's uh, trying to put some of his his tracking exploits uh, on his Instagram page. And there's little short videos. And then he's on, he's on my YouTube page. <laughs> awesome. I'm going to have to check him out. I didn't even realize he had his own Instagram page. Yeah, it's a thing, right? Everybody's got one now. Heck yeah. No, I'll definitely check that out. And Damon, thank you very much for coming on the podcast here, talking with me. Really thoroughly enjoyed it. So I I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Next time, we'll do some more. Yes, definitely will. All right, we'll talk to you soon, buddy. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.